On today's episode, two difference makers who have helped redefine Savannah's food culture, the Gray's world-renowned chef, Mashama Bailey, and restaurateur, John O'Morizano. The Difference Makers podcast is brought to you by an organization making a major difference in our community, the Savannah Economic Development Authority. Despite the census count is a small town, the leaders in our community have familiar names, familiar faces, and work for familiar organizations and businesses. But do you know why they are Difference Makers? The Savannah Economic Development Authority presents the Difference Makers podcast, a program dedicated to highlighting Savannah's key players and their contributions to our community. Difference Makers hail from several sectors, including commerce, government, education, arts and culture, and philanthropy. I'm Adam Van Brimmer, editorial page editor of the Savannah Morning News and SavannahNow.com. Thank you for listening. Our latest difference makers are the duo behind the Gray Restaurant. Chef Mashama Bailey and then-aspiring restaurateur John O'Morizano opened the Gray in late 2014. Their success helped spark a culinary revival locally and transformed Savannah from a place to eat comfort food to a culinary locale on par with the world's most talked-about foodie destinations. Savannah has long been a food town, but the last five years or so have really seen a, a evolution, and I'm joined today by two of the real pioneers in the more recent evolution of food in Savannah, John O'Morizano and Mashama Bailey from the Gray Restaurant and the Gray Market here in Savannah. Mashama, let's start with you. We always kick off these difference makers with a little bit of biographical information. And okay. I know because we had a little bit of a discussion before we turned on the microphones here that you have family connections here. Can you kind of talk about that? I do. Um, my mother was born in Waynesboro, Georgia, which is about 90 miles away from here. And I think after my brother was born, uh, I was born in New York City, and so was my brother. And I think after he was born, she wanted to be closer to family. So we lived in Savannah for about five years five, six years. So I went to Charles Ellis. I, right. I um, attended elementary school here. And I think my biggest memory, I have a few memories of Savannah, but I think one of my biggest ones was right when the Chuck E. Cheese opened <laughs> on uh, <laughs> Abercorn. That was a big day. <laughs> that was a huge day in a child's life. Um, but I, I love it here and I'm glad to be back. Do you ever return to Chuck E. Cheese is just for uh, old times' sake. No, <laughs> <laughs> you went for the games, not for the pizza. Yeah, anyway. totally, totally. Yeah, you've outgrown the game. <laughs> <laughs> just outgrown it just a little bit. Not yeah. by not in heart, just in size. <laughs> right, right. So culinary roots beyond Chuck E. Cheese. I know that you said your family is not necessarily. You weren't a family that was big into cooking growing up. Uh, kind of talk about what your background was in cooking and where it really kind of took off. So my family, my, my, my both my parents were working and going to school while they were raising a family. So it was very difficult for my mom to prepare meals on a daily basis. So it's funny now that I'm more known and people want to know more about me they often ask me for like a picture of me when I'm cooking as a child and we don't really I don't have any I don't have any pictures of like seven-year-old Mashama in a chef hat or anything like that but you know we have made 
tons of jello molds and little <laughs> Debbie and you know and Duncan Hines cakes and Jiffy corn box sure. cornbread please don't hate me for saying that but it's true <laughs> we ate Jiffy cornbread and I, I think still that do. Don't feel bad. I love it <laughs> and I think that you know food was always a big part of our lives but we we as working parents they had to go mm-hmm. a more convenient route because we always ate at home we ate every meal at home right. More of where we get we got that where I get that long cooking from are from my grandmothers mm-hmm. and from my grandparents. They had the time to do that. My grandfather used to go fishing on Fridays, and my grandmother would clean the fish, and we would have fish and grits on mm-hmm. with baked beans on Fridays. Mm-hmm. And this is my mom's, uh, my maternal grandmother, and my paternal grandmother was the entertainer, and she would have people over for every holiday you can think of you know president's day if it was a four if it was a three-day weekend she would have a barbecue or she would have people over for you know some oven baked ribs or whatever or hawaiian chicken the recipe she got out of the joy of um, cooking cookbook Mm -hmm. so in combination of eating at home with my parents and eating very simply and very quickly and also on the weekends or during holidays having this more extended outlook of slow cooking and you know southern food or soul food i think that's where i gained a respect for good food and i think that's where my cooking started it wasn't until i went to college um, that I actually was exposed to different cultures. I went to a community college in upstate New York, and New York City is very diverse, and that school attracted a lot of young folks from Brooklyn and Staten Island and um, and from Manhattan. And by attracting those people, you have like this Dominican culture and this Italian culture and this you know West Indian culture that we all sort of like had these potlucks. Mm -hmm. And I think that was when I really, that fire was sparked in me to actually consider, or just love food and actually consider doing it for a living. You're not studying culinary arts at that community college, right? No, I wasn't. Even though I had a few friends that, it it was called uh, Sullivan County Community College. I had a few friends in the culinary program, but I flat out was against it because I just thought it was too hard. I was like, this is hard. I don't want to stand for that long. And that's all I really cared about. I don't know. I, I, I mean, I stand for 60 hours a week now or even longer. And back when I was 19, I didn't want to stand too long. That's why I didn't think about cooking. So I got a, I got a little mixed up. So what happened? What triggered the, the move into that direction eventually? I graduated uh, Brooklyn College with a psychology degree, and I was working in a homeless shelter after graduation. And there was there were, have been a bunch of reasons. I've always surrounded myself by really good home cooks. Mm-hmm. And I just really liked good food. And I, I never really could afford to experience that in restaurants or anything like that. When I graduated school and I was already in my career, I wasn't that happy with it, but I would always have people over and sort of have that same pattern that my my grandmother had. Mm-hmm. Have people over, we'll cook some wings or we'll have a you know a small dinner or something like that. And it wasn't until people started to compliment 
the things that I was feeding them that I actually started to consider that maybe I had a knack at this. Right. And I enjoyed I enjoyed that feedback. Right. I really thought that it, it just really was a good self-esteem booster. And I kind of ran with it. And I was... Uh, let go of my let go from my job, and I think that at that moment I had already been thinking and considering taking on culinary arts professionally. Mm-hmm. I was just trying to figure out how I was going to find a time to do it. Clearly distracted and not engaged in my career at that point, and I, um, you know, I just had an opportunity. It kind of fell in my lap, and I took advantage of it, and I went to culinary school. Yeah, I want to bring Jono in here now. I know full disclosure, Jono and I have. I've known Jono since he came to town. Yeah, he he right. moved to town. I was a business reporter at the time. Jono came to town basically to uh, venture capital, angel investment. Well, I came to town to get out of New York. Really, yeah. um, I had yeah. no I had no good plan when I got here. But right. I just decided to sort of pick up where I left off in New York and try and start. We started a small um, angel financing firm. Um, me and a woman that I've worked with for almost three decades in new york right called slam ventures which still 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 going good good so you're downtown and why a restaurant i mean people say don't start a restaurant that's just a bad investment decision how do you become a millionaire start with 10 and open a restaurant um um no i didn't i didn't really intend to start a restaurant um i well i always feel like a liar when i say that i think that there was part of me that has always really been infatuated with, well, always been infatuated with food. And I grew up in a family where food was everything. Um, And as I became an adult in my 20s, I discovered wine when I was living in France. And that sort of combination of, you know, having this foundation in loving food and finding solace in food with my family and then getting to experience the world, like I've always been really fascinated with it. But as part of what I was doing in Savannah, which was really just trying to make a life for myself in, in the mid 40s, and when I say myself, my my wife and I, um, because I had split up with my business partner in New York City, mm-hmm. and as part of that plan, I I was like, oh, you know what? I've never really done real estate, so maybe I'll try and you know buy a little real estate and you know collect rent from people that was mm-hmm. kind of my plan and i bought um the building i bought a building on broughton street um that i was going to renovate and rent out and i bought the greyhound the abandoned greyhound bus terminal which was behind a big white sheet of plywood that you couldn't see from mlk and um, i remember the day our real estate broker walked me into the building going around back because you couldn't get in the front and just like taking a few minutes and going wow this building is different than everything else that's in downtown savannah because it had this art deco art modern sort of theme going and you could see these curved walls and this glint of like stainless steel here and there and I was immediately like, oh, we, we, we need to try and buy this building and preserve it. And that process took a year to buy the building from the former owner. Um, and during that period, I kind of learned more about the building, that it was a Greyhound bus terminal, that it was built in 1938, that it was segregated, you know, Jim Crow era the whole way. And I'd always been fascinated with um, sort of, I think the reason I ended up in the South is race and culture has been something that's always kind of made me interested. And I was like, huh, here's a chance to sort of get involved in, like sort of jump into the deep end of the pool on, um, you know, issues that are important 
um, you know, the dark side of them and the hopeful side of them mm-hmm. with this bus terminal. And, you know, the fact that it was such an important buses were so important to segregation and desegregation and the civil rights movement. And I had started to read a lot about that. And I was like, all right, we're going to do a preservation on this building after I bought it. And the first day I was in there after we closed on it, I was walking around and I was like, hmm, I went home and to my wife, Carol, and I said, you know, I think I want to build a restaurant in 109 MLK. And am I allowed to swear on these? He can cut it out. Yeah. All right. Well, I won't do the full thing. But <laughs> she's like, you're out of your effing mind. Right. Like she's, you know, I've done a lot of um, sort of risky things in my career as an entrepreneur, but she was convinced that I had lost my mind. But I was committed from that moment. And I thought that taking this building and building something in it that was for the Savannah community, because, you know, food and restaurants, where Misham and I are from in New York City, and, and I mean, anywhere, they're all about community. They become meeting points, right? And what I had seen was a lot of the restaurants in downtown Savannah, at least where I lived in the historic district, were really built for tourists, right? right? Because that's the low-hanging fruit, you know, and you get them in the door and, you know, you can do a good job and they can have a really positive experience and, you know, leave and you likely never see them again or you see them on their next trip to Savannah. Mm -hmm. And for me, like, that was not interesting at all, right? I didn't, I wanted to build something where when I was in the restaurant, which is, you know, pretty much all the time, that there was always familiar faces in there and that we were making the local community feel that the gray, what would become the gray, Mm And what would become this partnership between Mishama and me that people, you know, I think there's as many people who come to experience what's going on between Mishama and me mm-hmm. as they are the building and the food and, you know, just trying to provide this hospitable environment to locals. Um, and that was really what drove me. So you've got the you've got the building, you've got the idea for a restaurant, you're splitting your time between living here and living in New York mm-hmm. while you're in New York. You guys have not a chance encounter, right? You, you, no, it you wasn't chance. It was, uh, I was looking for a business partner. I was never looking to, to hire a chef. I was always looking for somebody who would want to come in and do this like fully committed, you know, not for a salary, but like a piece of the business. And, and that person is hard to find and it's risky. Um, because you know, when you're sort of bringing somebody in at that level, um, to work with you, it has to be really, it has to be a really strong relationship. And so I had met all these, you know, all these chefs, you know, and most of them were men and they were testosterone and they are the greatest cooks who, you know, Gordon Ramsay. There's, and especially like <laughs> six years ago when I started that search, it was, you know, I think that what has gone on in the food business in the last couple of years is sort of tamped down some of the aggression and some of the testosterone driven nature of it yeah right? tapped it down but not stomped it out I no think. I, agree I think there's that. i think there's a lot of secret uh, secretly aggressive chefs You're passive aggressive <laughs> no aggressive aggressive but it's a secret um yeah, I think I think that that makes a lot of sense. But I also think that when Jono was looking for a chef, he was already in the process. Like he was already moving, um, moving quite fast, and he was a little bit behind the curve when needing to adopt a chef. A lot. We were building yeah. a kitchen. Yeah. We were designing and building a kitchen, and the you know the the kitchen consultant and the designers were like, you know. 
if you don't have a chef, like, and we don't know what kind of food you're cooking, it's like we're making decisions in a vacuum. And that's why yeah. it became so urgent, like, all of a sudden. <laughs> and so when I met him through um, Gabrielle Hamilton at Prune, he literally was like, okay, so... I like you. You like me. Let's build a restaurant. What kind of food do you want to cook? When can you move to Savannah? Are you committed? Yeah. Are you going to be here forever? And I was like, whoa. And I was also like. Can we like, get through our coffee first? Yeah. <laughs> but the other part is like with my sort of Italian background, you know, where everything is about family. And, you know, as like now you realize that you're going to move down there and you and I are ultimately going to be family. Now, I realize it may take a little while for you to feel that way about me, <laughs> but eventually you're going to have to be like you know you're, we're going to have to be you know one one sort of happy family um and i really said that to her almost out of the gate at yeah, we were, yeah. the, well, that's the first time i saw the building and he said that to me and i was just like uh i don't know yeah. <laughs> so, but as soon as you walk into the space even um as dilapidated as it was it sat there for about 12 years empty and you walk into that space and there's so many happy memories there and a lot of good stuff happened in that building and you can feel it as soon as you walk in the door. Uh, you mentioned earlier instant chemistry. Mm-hmm. What was it? The personalities? Was it? I just felt comfortable. Yeah, I just felt comfortable around him. We had a we had an interview. I met him at his uh, work uh, slash home and um, we sat down and and had a proper getting to know you session and the next thing you know was four hours later so it was it was very comfortable yeah and for start. me i mean mishama just has this like i remember walking down the stairs of my building and she was waiting in the foyer and there's just a presence and a happiness about her that you know and a confidence but and not an arrogance and again because i had met a bunch of different chefs I would say almost without fail, there was this, there was some arrogance to all of them, which and I get. Like I get, you know, when you're doing things like that, when you're putting yourself out there creatively, it helps to have a little cockiness to you. You have to. You have to think what you're doing is good. But with Mishama, she was so disarming in this just sort of, you know, happy face and and that that confidence is really the underlying thing in her makeup. It's not what she's leading with. And a lot of the chefs I had met led with that, that and it borderlined on arrogance. So I was like, oh, here's this woman who actually grew up just like me, you know, in the Bronx and Queens, and I grew up in Staten Island. You know, we come from really, we both come from really humble beginnings and families, you know, blue collar at best, you know, or, and so you could just sense that you were with somebody who sort of, I could sense that I was with somebody who would get me once I started to talk about myself a little bit to them and vice versa. And that was sort of the, the my instant feeling about her. And the chance or the, the, the encounter really came out of Mishama was the sous chef at a restaurant on the Lower East Side of Manhattan called Prune, which I had always known and used to go to when Prune first opened, which it's been there 20 years now. And Gabrielle Hamilton, who runs Prune, own, owner chef of Prune, is quite literally one of the giants of the American culinary scene at this point um, and has done it with grit and done it with a 30 seat restaurant yeah is that right yeah and done it like almost by herself in that she bootstrapped everything and she built a team 
through culture and through like you know putting forth how she feels and getting people to invest in her viewpoint on food and running a business and i was reading her book as i was doing that drive between savannah and new york city i was actually listening to it on tape because i was driving um and i was like oh this woman i love her food and if I get the opportunity to get this place open and run a restaurant. I want to run it just like she runs Prune. She, after stalking her for like two months, like via handwritten letters and email, she took a meeting with me and decided that it may make sense for her to introduce me to Mishama as Mishama was her sous chef at the time. And uh, she made that introduction that then led to that meeting where we had this kind of instant karma moment. Yeah. And she understood the risks that, that she, she quite possibly could, that could mean she was going to lose you. Well, I I was ready to go. Yeah, it was time for me to go. I um I had been there about three and a half year three years at that point. And when you, I think it's important to stay at a restaurant for a while. I think it's important to cycle through at least two seasons at a restaurant, mm-hmm. meaning two falls, two springs. Mm-hmm. And when Gabrielle approached me about this opportunity. I really started to get a good grasp on how to manage a staff and how to support a staff. And I think it was time for me to just go. We had sort of run out of space for me there. But moving down to Savannah, I really was intimidated by the fact that I was coming from a 32 seat right. you know, restaurant. And when Jono showed me the plans, there were seats everywhere in this bus station. <laughs> and so, you know, I had to kind of fake it till I made it a little bit. You know, I had to kind of convince him that I was up for this task, but it was very daunting, very, very daunting. And I sought a lot of outside advice and a lot of counseling just to not necessarily convince myself that I could do it, but you know, I had to lay it all out at, on the table and really look at what I was trying to accomplish here. And I just wanted to be able to run a team and serve good food. That was, that was the whole point. And the great part about our partnership is right before I actually moved to Savannah, we took a trip together. We took an eating trip to Italy. And that's when we really started to bond and really through food and really understand each each other's perspective. And we sort of like the way things were seasoned the same. And we got excited about the same types of food. So I knew even going down there as a sous chef, Moving to Savannah with no team that I could turn to Jono for counsel and support when it came to designing and uh, designing a menu, even though he didn't know anything. <laughs> Nothing. <laughs> I knew what I liked to eat. He knew what he liked to eat. It was, but it's so crazy in retrospect because like we literally didn't have a clue. We had we had to pick out yeah. every fork, every knife, every plate, and we were like, "Well, what do we want to put on this?" The hallway of my house was filled with boxes of just samples, you know, samples of everything. And I mean, you know, I had never been in the restaurant business. I knew about running businesses. I knew about starting businesses. I didn't know anything about the restaurant business. And Mishama, to all of her credit, you know, had found, I would say, part of her voice as a cook working for Gabrielle and, you know, all through her career. But I think those three and a half years at Prune were super formative. Oh, for formative. sure. It was encouraged, yeah. yeah. Um, but we got there and, I mean, we opened the doors on December 18, 2014, and it was a disaster <laughs> for months. You know, like, 
I mean, I can remember, you know, tables just walking out just because we couldn't get wine for them. You know, we couldn't, we couldn't do anything. And, and I mean, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't all bad. I would say we were getting it right, you know, 75% of the time when we opened. Right. Um, but that 25% of those people that you pissed off, man, that's, that's hard, especially when you don't, I didn't even know how to talk to them. Yeah. Like I didn't even know how to apologize as them viewing me as the manager or, you know, or Mishama, you know, Mishama's kitchen getting their food wrong, you know, and like, what do you even say? Like, sorry. Yeah. You know, it was, it was, it was crazy. Right? Yeah, it was crazy. It was crazy. Mm-hmm. But you did get it right. Yeah. We're, we're, we're getting it right. We, yeah. I mean, we're getting it right more often. Yeah. But it's still, we still, every day we just, I'm not kidding you. We check in with each other every day and it's like, what can we do better today? That And where, what, what mistake did we make this past weekend that we don't want to make this coming weekend? It's never ending. And I think that commitment to excellence um, is something we had to figure out what that meant to each other. Um, because you know it's all relative, right? And there's different viewpoints on what that means. And I think those first couple of years were coming up with a common vocabulary that we could then share with the staff culturally about what it means to be committed to excellence. Mm-hmm. You know, we yeah. first had to get culture. on the same page. It's it, all about culture. The gray is all about culture. It's all about culture. Yeah. It's all about culture. Then the exciting thing about developing a culture is that as the leader of that culture or or being viewed as the leader of the culture, you get to really learn about uh, people, world, the world, food. I think I've grown so much and grow every day working with my staff and trying to figure out like what is going to motivate them because whatever motivates them is what motivates me. And so I won't say I'm finally having a good time, but (laughs) I'm definitely having a lot more fun now than I was, you know, Three years ago. Yeah, Yeah, no. And, you know, the the thing we always say, or like our sort of guiding principle at the gray is team first, Mm -hmm. right? If we all take care of each other, and that starts with Misham and I understanding the needs uh, of the team and making sure that we're clear in our communication with them about our expectations. But if we all take care of each other as a team, mm-hmm. then the guest taking care of the guest mm-hmm. is just, it's almost symptomatic of that. Mm-hmm. It's just, it just rolls into yeah. it. We'll get into our deep dive here in a moment, but first let's talk about the Savannah Economic Development Authority. When it comes to difference makers in our area, the team at CETA is pushing to make Savannah a great place to work and live. CETA is committed to creating, growing, and attracting jobs and investment in the Savannah region. Whether a business looking to relocate to the Savannah region or an existing business ready to grow and expand, CETA is the centrifuge of a propeller, making the connections, helping propel the business to success. Learn more about the Savannah Economic Development Authority and what they do in the Savannah community by visiting CETA.org. So culture yields results. And I mean, obviously there's there's business results when you look at your at your PL statement, but I think even more so last year you're a James Beard nominee. Mm-hmm. This year. Hopefully. Hopefully. Uh, semi finalist. Yeah, we're, we're, we're gonna find out. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the 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 Netflix show, Chef's Table, right? Yes, um, yes. How do you go from where you were in 2014 to now? Lack of sleep. <laughs> stress. Yeah, stress. <laughs> um, we've been moving. We've been moving. I think 
that now that all of, all of these things are um, coming out, and I think that we are really starting to learn how to support each other through this time and give each other space in order to process the information and also um, return it back to our staff in a positive way. And I think that one of the things that Jono touched on was communication. I think the hardest part are the thing that we struggled the most with was how we communicated with each other. Mm-hmm. Even though there was a spark and there was a bond instantly, we still weren't speaking the same language. And so the more I got to know him and what his expectations were and why and where they were coming from, the more our partnership, the stronger our partnership became. And so now I think as a result of the Netflix and the James Beard, I think our partnership is so much stronger that we're able to lean on each other in a way that we weren't able to do, you know, three, four years ago. So for me, I think the, those things are a result of the strengthening of our partnership. Yeah. I mean, this is really, the whole thing is just relationships, right? The, it's the, it starts with the relationship between Mishama and me, and then it's the relationship with the team. And then it's the relationship with the guest because every one of those encounters is a mini relationship, you know, with locals, it's a long-term relationship. And, you know, some of those folks who come in and eat at the gray are, you know, the people we hang out with outside of the gray, right? right. So they're all, it's all very intertwined. And, Misham and I, it's almost like, you know, everyone who's worked has been in this experience. Like, you know, we're, we've sort of been in the trenches together for over five years now that accelerates the relationship, right? Because when you're sort of, you know, fighting the battle together side by side, those relationships tend to grow more quickly than, you know, just allowing them to develop, but they still have to grow, mm-hmm. right? We started from zero, you know, and as much as I say we had a lot in common, I mean, Misham is this black girl from Queens. I'm this white kid from, you know, Italian white kid from Staten Island. Mm-hmm. As much as there were similarities, there's also a lot of differences, a yeah, lot like, of cultural I, I, differences. For sure, yeah. for sure. I don't know if we would met each other at a, in a room and gotten along necessarily, mm-hmm. but now that we have this common goal, we do realize how well we get along and how much we have in common and we battled it out like we were not there was never a fear even in that early phase where you're sort of figuring out how to talk to each other as mishama said and you're sort of treading lightly you know and there's a lot of reasons for that you know like i'm a guy she's a woman right so there's gender issues at play right there's there's race and culture issues at play there's I've been in the business world my entire life and Misham has been in kitchens her entire life. So that's two completely different perspectives. You know, I almost had a language of, you know, consultant kind of jargon, which is hurts your ears when you hear it, you know, it hurts my own ears, but that's what I grew up with as an adult. And so we had to not only figure out how to talk to each other, but we had to get comfortable enough with each other that we could be really honest with each other about where we're falling short in supporting each other, where our expectations are not being met by the other person. And sometimes that, you know, results in anger, that results in tears, that results in, you know, when you're working as hard as we work and your nerves are frayed. A lot of tears. And yeah. And it's you're personal, like, right? you're yeah. tired all the time. Yeah. And you know what? Again, it's like Misham is, you know, creating I think we're we're both creating at the gray. Like when you're putting that much of yourself, your personal viewpoints, 
you feel vulnerable all the time. And when you feel vulnerable to me, I mean, I cry at cartoons, right? So like, I'm easy, but yeah. So we had to like, there was so much growth that went on between us personally to get to this point where we are now. And we weren't being facetious earlier. We don't feel like we've achieved anything. We feel like we're fighting this fight every single day. And for a good, I mean, we're motivated by the same goals and we're really proud of what we're doing, but it's just, I really feel like it's just beginning. Me, I do as well, and I think that you, you know, I think what I've learned between w- when we opened and now is that you truly are as good as the last plate you put out. <laughs> oh, you yes. know, yeah. like that is a real thing. I think people are forgiving if the plate before that was delicious, but you're really judged on that last impression. Right. And I think that's the part. That's where we're similar because we always want to get it right. right. We, we always want to get that experience, and we always right. take it personally when we don't. Exactly. Even if the guest is a completely difficult person um and we've only had a handful of people in the entire time we've been open where we've had to ask them to leave or they've been insulting to the staff even with those people we still want the food to be right we still want the service experience uh, yeah to be i right. think uh, even more so yeah 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 exactly right because that's how you that's you your, your revenge yeah. against those yeah, folks sure is to actually provide them exactly the food you want to and the service you want to so before we get into kind of a, a deeper dive into the restaurant culture in savannah i want to we touched on the netflix the, the chef table earlier and i know you did some cvs this morning having the exposure to the masses and not just maybe the the foodies how much impact has that had? i think it has a huge impact um coming to savannah as a black chef i thought for sure that our demographic in the restaurant was going to be um, mostly black, quite honestly, mostly black folks. And I think that um, because I don't necessarily cook um, soul food or I don't necessarily, I cook soulfully, but in this way that is through my own experiences, it's not always viewed the same way. It's not as regular as some other food can be recognized. Sometimes I even have a hard time describing it or even where it comes from. I see an ingredient and then I kind of go down this recipe road and I may end up in Africa, I may end up in Italy, or I may end up in Spain. But I think the con- the end result and the end goal for me is that it is a soulful, enriching experience. And so, because I view, I come at it that way. I I've always just kind of assumed that everybody is gonna love it. So <laughs> that's not arrogant at all. No, nope. everyone's gonna love my cooking. And so. Um, if I love it, they're gonna love it. Yeah. Anyway, being a black woman, I was expected to expecting to see a lot of um, faces that look like mine, and I think what is happening with this larger media exposure that people are actually realizing that I'm there and actually realizing that I am cooking the food and that I have a different a different story to tell. Like my black experience is a different black experience, and it could be just as interesting as theirs, or it can be enlightening. And, and, and compliment there. So I think they're curious about seeing that. So that's the biggest shift, I think, is that people, um, we're seeing a more diverse crowd in this fine dining environment where normally in a fine dining environment you see one type of one sure. type of demographic sure. either a well-traveled person which you know can be a very diverse person or more of a white clientele. 
So let's let's nerd out here to to close uh, to close up. So I've been in Savannah since 1999, and when I moved to Savannah, fine dining pretty much was Elizabeth's, the old Pink House, uh, maybe Garibaldi's or Sapphire Grill. I have to say, those Sapphire are all the places Grill. we yeah. went. You know, yeah. yeah, those were our you know yeah. those were our joints. All good, yeah. all very good. But in the last five, maybe even ten years, we've seen an explosion. Uh, I think you guys were probably on the front end of that, but when, when you see the gray, when you see husk, when you see what, local eleven ten, local eleven ten, mm-hmm. uh, Pachi, I know has had mm-hmm. some some changes, but it seems like the the higher end of the dining has really evolved in the last five six years. What is you guys' perspective? Why is that? Is it just does what you guys do kind of feed, and the culture kind of feeds on itself? How does how's it grown this way? I think. Since I started cooking, there's been a real exposure to food in general. Mm -hmm. And I think there's a lot more. I think there are more really serious home cooks out there. Mm -hmm. So I think the growth in fine dining or in chef-driven restaurants Mm -hmm. is that people who actually cook at home and and they have really good ingredients and and they go to their farmer's market every week they really those are the people that want to go out and actually be motivated and 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 be inspired and i think that now with this exposure and a little bit of an overexposure of food we have this responsibility to really push the envelope Mm -hmm. and so i think what's happening is that opening up a feel-good comfort restaurant is cool, but if you really want food-driven people to eat in your space, then you got to step it up. Mm-hmm. And I think maybe that's that's a, some of the reason why there's a growth in fine dining in, mm-hmm. in this town. Because mm-hmm. I think Savannians are really great cooks, and I think they take food very, very seriously. So you can't, you can't come here mm-hmm. and not be correct. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What I've seen is, um, so I think that, what Misham and I do is we really keep our head down at the gray, right? And we try and do as good a job as we're capable of. And we also try to be very supportive of everyone else who's trying hard. Right. Um, And I think that we got, you know, we're really, you know, the, the first truly chef-driven restaurant that came to Savannah in a long time since mm-hmm. Elizabeth. Mm-hmm. I think Hugh and Kyle tried it up right. at the Florence. Yes. Um, and, you know, we can post-mortem that one all day long. But those guys were trying... Kyle was trying really hard, and he had our unending support. Yes. You know, Jason at Atlantic tries really hard. Um, Anthony at Collins Quarter and Fitzroy. Mm-hmm. Like, the guy works, you know almost 24 hours a day and it's like those folks who are trying really hard that's what's elevating it right and you can we can argue you know and savannians love to talk about where they don't like the food you know they love to talk about who's not getting it right Right. but here's what i know about those people that i just met and there's more i'm not trying to just single out that group but that you know those folks are working their tails off to give to put good food on the plate and to give their guests a good experience. Um, and there are a lot more, you know, the guy who opened Bull Street, John at Bull Street Taco, he's trying hard, you know, like, and so there's these new folks who are coming and, you know, I don't, I, I don't think it has anything to do with the gray other than I think everyone who knows us and who 
doesn't write us off, you know, for whatever reasons they see fit to think we're not worthy. I don't know. I think everyone who knows us knows that we're, we try so hard every day. And I think, I hope that it, that's either inspiring to people or competitive to people. You know, it's like good, you know, good, healthy competition is what makes the world go round, Mm -hmm. you know? So I, I think that, you know, that's the best thing we can do for the Savannah market is just work as hard as we possibly can to make good food and give our guests a good experience. Do you feel, uh, both of you, this you came to town really on the on the tail end of let's call it what it was, a Lady and Sons craze. And when people thought of Savannah, they thought of food, they thought of Lady and Sons, and that was okay. Do you get the sense now, this many years later, that that we're past that, that we are thinking more in terms of of chef created dishes and, and a different kind of dining, and not being necessarily pigeonholed into into what people expect because of that legacy i think it's still 50 50 i think that there's still a lot of people that come here and they are looking for that lady and son's experience Mm -hmm. and i think that people are coming here and they're looking for you know a cotton and rye or Mm -hmm. a gray experience i Mm -hmm. think that you um i i I just i think that there it's so imprinted here Mm -hmm. that people come from Ohio, and mm-hmm. they want to come to the South, and they want to eat yeah. collard greens and grits place, yeah. and yeah. shrimp, yeah. and they want to eat the things that this area is known for. I think um, cotton and rye is a really good example, or or a bellwether of where Southern food is going from, like that sort of comfort styled Southern food that mm-hmm. Paul Dean put on the map, mm-hmm. um, you know, through what she was doing which when Misham and I were kind of going back and forth and arguing a little bit and there was a little subterfuge between us on how we were going to develop the menu, how she was going to develop the menu, but I was kind of trying to push us in this more Mediterranean European direction and Mishama kept talking about Southern food and that word for me was almost like a dirty word because yeah. I was like, I don't want to eat Lady and Son's food. Right, I don't want to feel like I have to go to the doctor after I've had dinner. Right, that's just me, and I'm not. I understand that a lot of people, and there's a time and a place for it, and you know. But but there's a reputation of Southern food that is viewed as um, comforting or or fatty or unhealthy, and I think I know when I when I refer to Southern food. It's the complete opposite. Mm-hmm. It's cleaner yeah. and it's reserved, and, and there's some restraint there. And I think that you had to learn that. And that was eye opening for me. And I think that what um, Zach, who's one of those guys who tries really hard up at Cotton and Rye, um, I think he's almost like the bridge um, between you know what it got the reputation of being. But then he's taking everything he learned in his travels in Miami, and you know, and taking you know, some of these sort of new or or moder- elevating, modernizing that, that Southern comfort food to a way that it seems more familiar to me and more um, something I'd rather eat than that, yeah. I don't know, butter and fat and yeah. Let's wrap up with, with a question a little bit about restaurant settings. Uh, you guys go into an old bus station. We have a lot of restaurants or in old houses. We're seeing what husk is in a old 
basically Masonic kind yeah, of lodge and, and, and yeah. all these different historical buildings that are being repurposed. And now we've got some some new construction downtown that is fitting with the historical context that restaurants are going into. How unique is that for Savannah? Is that uh, how does that add to the experience for the for the diner? Uh, well, for me, even coming to Savannah it added to the experience because I wanted to respect the space. And I knew I was in a segregated building and I knew that that was going to be a topic of conversation for me um, on really kind of on a daily basis, if not maybe a weekly basis, if not a daily basis. And I think you have so much more to offer your guests. People come to Savannah and it has like so, it's so historic and has like this sort of creepy vibe and well, there's like it's, ghost tours your everywhere. Your line from Chef's Table though is like what immediately comes when you say Savannians love the past. <laughs> you know? And so I think when you are in these buildings and you can talk about what it was and where it is now is a huge um, is a huge selling point quite frankly. And um you know, new construction is new construction, and I don't hate that either, but I think that there's an advantage of being in a building that's been here for, you know, almost 100 years. Mm-hmm. And uh, a disadvantage when it comes to, like, the plumbing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, <sorry> <laughs> and, you know, yeah, all the, the other things. Yeah, we have a leak that we yeah, have, we have a leak door that we can't You don't even know where it's coming is, from. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think it spans the whole spectrum, right? We mentioned earlier, uh, before we come on the air, Betty Bombers. And, mm-hmm. you know, here's a restaurant that's in the old Legion Hall. And mm-hmm. it's, it's got all these World War II posters on the wall and old shell casing boxes for the condiments. And it, it seems like if you can blend those things in, it might not necessarily make the food taste better, but it just makes it's, everybody more comfortable yeah, I mean, and engaged. Yeah, it makes I mean, the experience, I think, yeah, and better. Local 1110 is in a former bank building, and the Atlantic's in a former gas station, and Cotton and Rye's a bank. And, um, and I think that what we, you know, how we tried to contribute to Savannah again with the gray was take the bus terminal. And the design brief, you know, was for the bus terminal was don't screw up the bus terminal, right? right? Make sure that we retain all of the architectural and historic integrity of the building Mm -hmm. and drop a restaurant in it that felt like it could have been there in 1938 when the building opened. And that's, it's hard. It's hard to pull that off. Like, because, you know, especially, you know, with me, it's like, you want to be heavy handed about it. Like, so you make sure you're letting people know where to go. And so that sort of dialogue between the the architects and the designers and you as the restaurant owner and Mishama as the restaurant owner and the, and the person running the kitchen. It's like, you don't real, I didn't realize at that moment how many big decisions we were making about, you know, this as a contribution to Savannah. And in a way we got a little bit lucky and in a way we got a little bit, you know, a li- we were a little smart and a little lucky. Yeah. And, um, and I think you see a lot of that now. Like I think that, the guys are opening the fat radish in the old spare time space. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that's another sort of, um, you know, one that's happening right downtown, yeah. you know? Yeah. yeah I, I can remember walking into the gray the first time having been in it when it was Metropole. It was, yeah. I'm it, so sorry. I never saw Metropole. I wish I could have seen it because everybody in Savannah just pines away for that joint. It was very, uh, eclectic. Yeah. I think what you guys have done yeah. with it is, is much improved, but, uh, I want to thank you both for for coming in and, yeah, and taking you. the time to talk with us today. And it's uh, it's 
you guys are real difference makers and i look forward to um seeing what's next thank Thank you, you adam this was great Let me thank our guests, the Grays Mashama Bailey and John O. Morizano. Also, our presenting sponsor, the Savannah Economic Development Authority, a difference-making group in our community. Listen to new and archived episodes of Difference Makers wherever you listen to podcasts, including Apple Podcasts, Google Play Music, and Spotify. Recent programs have featured the Savannah Music Festival's David Pratt and Service Brewing Company's co-founder, Kevin Ryan. You have been listening to the Difference Makers podcast, a production of the Savannah Morning News and savannahnow.com. Thank you.